0: Hey there, dudes and dudettes, and welcome to Extreme Movie Reviews, where the takes are as extreme as literally any product you could have bought in the 90s. It's totally time to set your Tamagotchis down, pick up your pogs off of the floor, sit back and relax for a radical time with your host. Hi. I am looking in my crystal ball into the near future and I'm in agreement with you on the runtime of this episode. Sorry, not sorry. Really, we should be feeling bad for me. You can pick and choose what segments you'd like to listen to. I'm the one recording and editing this. For your information, if you weren't aware, I do earmark most of my content. So somewhere within the interface that you listen to me through, you should be able to find timestamps allowing you to jump to certain segments you enjoy most, or skip ones you don't enjoy. Take advantage of that feature, please. Especially for this episode, that may be wise. Um, I'll be taking a lot of detours for tangents, and there's a lot of off-movie content in this review as well. Compared to normal, it's like probably going to end up around 80% my normal content, just more of that, <laughs> and then there's a decent amount of deeper dive stuff about the turtles franchise. It is their 30th anniversary this year, after all. Speaking of 30-year anniversaries, I am turning 32 pretty soon. This is my birthday episode! I'm doing what I want. This Steve just wants to have fun. Uh, I love subjecting you to short bits of me singing. Looking forward a bit, we've got my favorite three holiday months lining up. It's almost time to get in as many horror movies and horror classics as I can. Follow that up by starting to think about Christmas and enjoying all the fun family movies of the Thanksgiving season ending with Christmas, which is, of course, loaded with great movies of all genres. With that, my plans for the rest of the year go something like this. To release something horror-related, I'm not sure yet, Um, that will be treated as a bonus something something depending on time constraints i will be releasing my ranking of the entire halloween series i will be doing a review on the first movie in that series so halloween's 1978 halloween i should say a review of more um, a more modern horror movie that's yet to be determined i'm hopeful on that one Plus, another review from Haley and I will be coming up, so if I recall, we are going to be reviewing the movie Tully. If I'm able to fit in another horror movie, I'd, I'd love to do so, something classic, maybe that would be tied into whatever quote-unquote horror-related episode I decided to do that I mentioned at the front here, um, maybe some, you know, maybe just do a review instead of even doing that, so we'll see there. Then, I may take it easier uh, going into November and ramp it up later November through December again. I would like to get like 8 to 10 more reviews in by the end of the year, but to be honest, this review took a lot longer than expected and suddenly that number looks all more daunting. Also, I would like to mention that I have not forgotten that I need to review the movie The Grey. I believe it is. I'll double check before I go ahead and do that. As a listener has requested that in a much appreciated iTunes review, that looks like a good January-February review, so that's on the slate for after this holiday season. Did you guys just hear that? All my joints cracked. I'll be reviewing the sequels for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which are Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Secret of the Ooze, and TMNT 3 early next year as well that'll be held off for a little bit. Looking to our boards, today's episode, we are reviewing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was released in 1990, two years after I was born. Also, the first movie that I ever got a movie ticket for. My parents did an excellent job with my brother and I's first movies. I believe my brother's first movie was the original Ghostbusters. So, I mean, I don't know that you could do any better than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Ghostbusters for your children's first movies. If you would like to watch this movie, you can rent it through Amazon or a local movie rental outlet, which I would highly suggest you throw some support towards. I get the convenience of Amazon, but I think it's important we try and make some special efforts to make sure that we don't forget about our local businesses and to toss your support that way when you can. If you can, go out of your way even to do it. If you are a fan of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there are several options for purchase, um, First of all, just this year, twenty twenty, they released an anniversary edition. I couldn't find any uh, details like about bonus content on that DVD. I would, or on the Blu-ray, um, or both. Whatever the case, I would assume that there is some bonus content on there, but who knows? Um, that will include your first three Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. I believe the first of the uh, Michael Bay. Films and then Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles vs. Batman, which apparently is really really good, so I need to add that to my watch list. There's also a there's actually two three pack options that's what it's called there's a DVD and a Blu ray option. I think they were released years apart, but I believe it's probably the exact same thing, just you know, the format was changed for Blu ray. That is what I use for this review. It's a cool three-pack, to be honest, uh, artwork-wise. But there's also a two-disc, four-movie option, which will have your Michael Bay and the first three originals. Michael Bay's second movie is better than the first, so it's, that's why it's not included in so many, like, uh, like that two-disc, four-movie option. So if, you, uh, if you're looking to purchase these movies, your best route is probably going to be to spend the money on that anniversary edition, which will give you five of the six movies that you need and then just go out and find the cheapest way to get uh, michael bay's second film and boom you got it teenage mutant ninja turtles the movie that we will be reviewing today was directed by steve Barron. interestingly enough he began his career as a camera assistant on some pretty noteworthy films superman from 1978 the christopher reeve years as well as A Bridge Too Far and The Duelists. Then he moved to directing music videos in the early eighties, and apparently his work helped to inspire the formation of MTV. Most notably, in nineteen eighty-two, he directed Michael Jackson's "Bailey Jean" is not my lover. <laughs> That's that probably sounds terrible, but it sounded better than I would have expected. Um, which that that music video won awards like. Gangbusters, and so did 1986's AHA video for Take On Me, where he was awarded Best Director. Then this dude took his successes to network television, where he quickly won an Emmy for Hans, My Hedgehog, which involved Jim Henson's team. Note. His second and third network television projects garnered critical acclaim as well. This would lead right up to his second movie in 1990, which stunned the movie industry becoming the first independent feature film to break the 100 million dollar mark in theaters i'm going to remind you it broke the 100 million dollar mark by grossing 350 million dollars that movie was teenage mutant ninja turtles (laughs) Steve would go on to direct more successful movies in the mid-90s. Not, like, more successful than this one, but just more successful movies. Like the movie Coneheads, which is not a masterpiece. And I'm not going to quite say that this is a masterpiece either, but Coneheads has definitely got its own cult following, for sure. Through the years, he's had plenty more successes, sometimes on the big screen and others back in network television. One theme that really seems to be found across all of his works is imagination. He, Steve Barron, seems to be someone you would hire if you want something creative. Even more specifically, I would say he really specializes in melding the real world with the not real world. Whether that not real world be through puppets, hand-drawn, the mystical, or or simply a highly animated world, or characters that need to exist in the real world. Men running around in rubber turtle suits. So I think they really nailed it with their hiring of this director. I didn't plan to talk about this director that much, but, um, you know, when you haven't heard somebody's name before and then you see this resume, you kind uh, of eh, feel like I need to talk about it. Plus, this episode's gonna <laughs> be like three hours. This movie is credited with uh, three or five writers dependent upon the source that you use. I'm going to go with that five writer source Um, and the reason that I bring these writers up is for one primary reason. Two of the five writers are actually the co-creators of the movie, Peter Laird and Kevin Eastman, who are solely responsible for the creation of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in 1984. In comic form, they have the final say over all ip related issues with the turtles or technically they had speaking in current times god my joints are cracking a lot so uh these two kevin and peter are specifically credited with writing quote unquote characters which is something i will talk about more in regards to this movie and the teenage mutant ninja turtle brand in general i'm going to take this moment to inform you of a show on netflix the toys that made us which should have made it onto my just previous episodes about documentaries uh but somehow it slipped through the cracks and i'm sure some others did too there is an episode on teenage mutant ninja turtles um in that series that you should definitely watch if you want more inside information on the creation of the turtles i will actually be going through a little bit more of that at the end of this episode that's backloaded for a reason it's not really about the movie um But if you think about it, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are one of the dumbest ideas ever. They're probably not that far from the pet rock. But hey, both of them had success, so it's not like dumb ideas don't make money sometimes. And it's not like dumb ideas can't turn into great things. But I'll go into why I believe that this movie, everything with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle franchise, worked during my review. And it comes down to really one word and that word is character i would tell you not to forget that but you won't trust me with that let's keep moving what do you think the ratings look like as a quick introduction for anyone not familiar i will be looking at three ratings for this movie and making my own guesses on what those ratings are two of those ratings are from rotten Tomatoes scores separately they are the audience score and the critic score Rotten Tomatoes scores are very simple. It's a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Did you like the movie? So I will be guessing what percentage of audience goers and what percentage of critics liked the movie. Which ones gave it a thumb up? The third rating I look at is the IMDb score, which is a rating on a scale of 1 to 10, one decimal place deep. Where the Rotten Tomatoes score gives you a good idea of whether or not a movie is liked, The IMDb score gives you a good idea of how much people liked it. As a disclaimer, I'd like to mention that I do this before I go into my research of any movie so that I am unable to cheat. These are real guesses and I've also began writing down my logic behind the guess at the time of my guess instead of trying to go back in time and explain my logic after I've seen the actual ratings. So let's begin with the Rotten Tomatoes audience score. God, how many of these cracks are you guys hearing? My shoulders are nuts. My guess for the Rotten Tomatoes audience score is 79%. My reasoning was, I'll bet a large portion. I'm sorry, I'm going to be reading. This is literally what I wrote. I'll bet a large portion of the people who voted on this either love the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise or have nostalgic memories of this movie. Rental concerns about violence probably won't have a big effect on the overall percentage, but I am guessing a little below my gut feeling due to that factor. So once again, my guess is 79%. Guess what the audience score was, y'all? 81%. Remember that last little detail I just said? So I think I kind of nailed that. There are over 250,000 votes that went into that 81% score, so you can take that number to the bank. It will cash out just fine. Next up, the Rotten Tomatoes critic score, where I guessed 61%, and what I wrote about my guess of 61% is. Being an older film, there probably won't be so many reviews. Plus, critics' reviews tend to be rough on older movies, let alone one about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. However, I am going this high because I have hope that there will be enough appreciation for the set design and practical effects that were largely, flawlessly, entered into a real-world scenario. Violence level could turn some off, too. Well, the Rotten Tomatoes' critics score was 40%, with only 52 votes. I was hopeful that there would be enough love for all the great things that this movie does well. Unfortunately, here is a case where Haley's motto that Critics like to be critical. That's, I'm not trying to impersonate Aileen, but I'm just trying to give it a different voice. Is um, probably the case. Uh, critics like to hate. You know, that's that's what her motto is And in this case. I think she nailed it. If she were here, she might be proud. So let's move on to the IMDB rating on a scale of 1, to 10, 1 decimal deep. I wrote down 6.3 or 6.7. And then I was kind of just sitting there looking at those two numbers and I wrote giving it the nostalgic bump up to 6.7. So that's a 6.7 is my final answer. I I literally wrote that. With almost 84,000 votes ratings 1990's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie received a 6.8. I just would like to softly remind you I said 6.7. Point one off there fucking good and and I and I came in under so price is right rules man to be fair I have my movies like my own dvd collection and blu-ray collection is all organized through the use of a spreadsheet where I did once look up all these ratings so although it's been a couple of years some of that information might just be in the back of my head and might have had an unfair advantage there but let's just recap that The Rotten Tomatoes audience score was 81%. The Rotten Tomatoes critic score was 40%. And IMDb's rating was a 6.8 out of 10. To put that into words, to me, that means there's a three quarters chance that you're going to like the movie. And although you may not love it, you'll enjoy it. So like, do you recommend the movie? this movie is a childhood favorite along with the second movie in this franchise as well this movie and the turtles themselves were definitely a big part of my childhood and to be quite honest it is one of the few franchises in my entire life where it's like i want that as in like i want that merchandise um, even into my adulthood i have bought a few ninja turtle products because of the brand uh, because of my love for them i you know i They mean something to me, and in general, I'm not a big fan of like uh, shirts or whatever with media companies' products printed all over it. Like, I don't, I don't like to just be an advertising board for um, FUBU or whatever. Um, What Tommy Hilfiger loves to just they just put their name on stuff, and hey, look it, I can wear Tommy Hilfiger. I don't like that, but I've supported the turtles. (laughs) You know, there's just something that everyone can relate to, and That's going to come down to that magical word of mine. Character. So, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't feeding you guys some bullcrap with that statement. And I called my mom. Mom, the meatloaf! Fuck! And I asked her to verify the fact um, about, since I was a little kid even, about, you know, the fact that I, I didn't always necessarily want what was big or all these toys from certain shows and nerf guns i didn't always ask for that kind of stuff so uh, like i said i called my mom to verify that she said quote unquote yes definitely one of the few big fads or merchandising products geared towards kids that you ever wanted to get your hands on the products of and then she thought about it a little bit more and she goes you know what Uh, the other two products that you at least uh searched for would be disney related stuff and then beanie babies which both of those i can't argue with her she is correct uh i have no problem with disney's product i think disney puts out a really good product overall and beanie babies were the freaking shit so you can't blame me for either one of those two but other than that it really was teenage mutant ninja turtles and then whatever with that nonsense aside about me teenage mutant ninja turtles the movie is rated pg but it treats the threat of violence very realistically especially for its target audience like eight-year-olds. It's a movie that neither shied away from the realistic threat of violence nor did it shy away from creating tension. It's not a horror movie but they did use some horror tactics. The extra cartoony um, sound effects that are used throughout the movie are definitely there to like soften the blow of all this violence and um yeah I mean the there's no doubt about it that they are there to soften, to to help, encourage a PG rating over a PG-13. But um, this movie gets taken as seriously as it can, considering the goofy premise that it's built around. Today, in these days, it would be rated PG-13. I think they really, really, really figured out the censors in order to get a PG rating, and I, I'm gonna say. There is a scene where you see um, Raphael trip some some criminals as they like stole a purse from a woman, and the trip is very very clearly like he there's no contact between his foot and these guys feet, and it makes no sense to me and why these creators would have a shot so obviously so obviously like you the shot is only on the feet there's no way to miss the fact that he doesn't actually trip these guys and i believe that that is part of how they were able to get a pg rating over a pg 13 rating now i'm going to clarify what i'm about to talk about in case you are new to my show so i'm rating this movie out of five stars currently and it's just simply my most pure and simple opinion of the movie from one friend to another or from one stranger to another. Later, I will be looking at the movie on a much more, I don't even want to say much, but on a more critical level, and that rating is my official podcast score or the rating for the movie. This is just my suggestion level. (laughs) This segment is really intended for anyone who hasn't seen the movie and is here to give you an idea if you should watch it prior to listening to my review or you know if you're good to just continue and listen to my review and then figure out if you want to watch the movie or not. In this case, hi Snickers, I would say there's really no such thing as a true spoiler to this movie so you're pretty safe to just go ahead and listen to this. With that said And now that you know a little of my history with the Turtle franchise, I would give this movie, as realistically as I can, 3.8 stars out of 5. If you're into practical effects, puppetry, or you're just into movies from this era, I think this movie is a near must watch. If you are ever planning on getting into this industry, I think you could learn from uh, looking at this movie critically after listening to my review. With everything said about how serious this movie takes itself, if you're just not into movies intended for kids and don't mean um, and you don't like meet any of that aforementioned criteria, you could probably skip this movie and still live a totally fulfilled life. Sure, it's um, very much targeted towards the younger audience. Ultimately, with there's just enough meat on the bone for uh, the adult audience. So let me repeat. That more clearly for you there is enough meat on the bone of this movie for you as an adult to most likely enjoy the time that you spend watching it just because I say that there's just enough doesn't mean that there's too little there's enough there but you know it's close I uh, also should mention that if you have a kid or kids that you would like to share this movie with or watch with for a first time together, and it's been a long time, it is rated PG. But if uh, violence is your bugaboo, there's a fair amount of it. And it's essentially cartoon levels of violence, but with real real weapons. Um, and I would say it's about 75% like cartoon level violence. But... At times it does get eh, realistic enough that if you're sensitive, if it's your bugaboo, at least maybe just give the movie a watch on your own before you introduce it to your kid. I personally, I think it's fine for kids like, uh, let's say about eight, seven, depends the maturity of your kid and up, but there are some out there who would say otherwise. So, um. I guess two things. The word damn also gets used like maybe 10 times by one of the turtles in this movie. And also, in today's day and age, this movie would probably be rated PG 13, not PG. That is 3.8 out of 5 stars from me with two thumbs up, dude. It's good enough to rewatch at least once in your adulthood. Especially if you need those nostalgic feels in your life. I don't know. Some of y'all ain't handling quarantine so well. So maybe that's what you need. Just go pop this movie in there. and Remember pre-sneeze days. Hey dude, sorry, it's me again. I was just wondering, could you tell me more about the movie? Here's where I'm gonna just, just coming out and saying Like, I believe a huge reason... For the success of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. Is that focus that was put on creating characters. Well defined characters. That are not quite one dimensional. Then again. I mean they they sort of are. But to clarify that. A little more. Emotionally. And as like set roles within the group. Each one is quite one dimensional. However they each also have their own likes and dislikes. They each have an entire range of emotions that they feel, even though there's one primary emotion for each character, that that like that they're built upon that emotion, kind of. You better believe that those pushing this franchise pushed the individuality of each character, every chance that they got. So they, they built around a primary emotion, essentially, uh, so that they were more than one dimension. But... They made absolutely sure to stay consistent and within a set boundary for each individual turtle, too. I mean, you know, they, it's, it's, I guess it's a healthy balance between hyper focusing and and allowing more than one dimension. I hope that makes sense. I just fucked that up. Probably doesn't make sense. Deal with it. By creating four of these characters and strictly sticking to the script for, like, who each character is kids are easily able to relate to one or two of the turtles. I'm, I'm quite positive that as a child my favorite colors were orange and purple and I'm I believe that's because those were the two turtles that I liked the most. So makes sense. Um, they were very careful to really cover all of their bases between the four characters so a large percentage of kids would be able to relate to the turtles on some level and more often than not kids were able to relate to one or two of these turtles on a pretty deep level. Off the top of my head, the Rugrats is one of the few shows that really pulls this off on a level nearest to the turtles. And when I say show, I mean I kind of mean products, I guess, at least for around this time period because I might not know some more recent products. On the other hand, if you look at something like the US's version of the Power Rangers, which is another highly successful franchise, I believe more successful than Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, those original characters were not very well developed. They probably got um, better with that over the the years, but originally they quite literally took it only skin deep by mostly pairing the colors of each ranger to the stereotypical skin tones that you would associate with those colors. One third of those Power Rangers shows runtime was simply them morphing which is radical like those it's, it's pretty awesome but it doesn't create a close bond like the ninja turtles was able to do with its fans um, another childhood favorite of mine which is three ninjas for those of you who are aware of three ninjas i love you but um they, they did a decent job of imitating this turtle formula and because of that they'll probably get a review someday but i mean you know those are kind of my opinions on how i don't know i don't know that anybody did the ninja turtles even close to as well as the ninja turtles did the ninja turtles another huge plus for this franchise and what they were able to pull off is by having these turtles as teenage mutant ninja turtles like Obviously, as kids, we are going to be able to relate to other kids, or you know, kids that are our older siblings' age, roughly, or, sim- or or friends' siblings, whatever. You know, everybody looks up to teenagers when they're not a teenager yet. So, adding that teenage aspect to the turtles was huge, and they never forgot that this bunch of wackos are still just teenagers. And I'm specifically speaking about the movie at this point. Um, they continually, even though they sometimes are come off as maybe older than teenagers, uh, they don't forget it. Plus, they made the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles just edgy enough that like, older siblings would like the turtles. And, and if you get the older sibling, that means that the younger siblings probably going to like that too. So it's, um, it's a strategy that was purposely pulled off by Sega in the 90s. Um, they legit targeted the older audience with edgy in order to also get the younger audience. I mean, it's similar to Disney strategy, get them when they're kids and they'll be a fan for their life. With all that said, if there's one thing that that was in vogue in the nineties, it is the word it is. It is embodying edgy. Edgy was in, in the '90s. extreme. I mean, you know, like my fucking podcast name, extreme. Everything had to be edgy in the nineties. So that was totally in vogue at the time and everybody from the ages of four to 13 and younger and older (laughs) fell in love with these turtles and many continue to carry on that love to this day several years back i dated a girl for a while and for a short bit and um she was a massive teenage mutant ninja turtle fan she is part of the reason why i got back into the turtles a little bit and she was in her 30s at she was about my age at that time period it's, it's a lasting uh, brand that seems to really, truly come back about, I don't know, every 10 years or so, they make a big comeback, but they're always there. For now, to finish this conversation up and as a nice transition into the movie review itself, I'd like to show you an example of the great lengths, the great creativity, and importance that was put on the characters of each turtle. This example can be found on the uh, DVD three-pack that I own where in the extra features is a little gem titled The T-Files. Super creative. Where they have six breakdowns about each of the main characters in the story who are Donatello, Michelangelo, Leonardo, Raphael, Sprinter, and the Shredder. The first four names being our titular turtles. What you're hearing is that I am now going to give you the biographies that are within these T files for each turtle, as I found them to be fun and interesting to look through myself, so I figured they might be good content. They will also help to like hammer home my my whole point here. I mean this franchise is really about character. What you might not know if I didn't say anything and why the audio also just may be different is because I will be recording that a little later. When I'm in a better location to be able to read off of the big screen. Because I'm there's no point in typing all there. It's like... <laughs> Sitting here editing. And I've reached as far in the recording. Two things. I apologize for that. If you can hear the constant like rubbing or knocking bass um, through whatever you're listening to me through. I apologize for that. If you can't hear it, just ignore this. And I realized I got to record this section. So... Let's talk about our characters. Start off with Donatello. Donatello is 5 foot tall, 160 pounds. His eyes are black. His weapon is a bow or a staff. His favorite color is purple. Donatello's hobbies are inventing, computers, engineering science, piloting, mathematics. His favorite music is classical and classic rock he likes the roaches Donatello's nicknames are Don and Don San his favorite foods are pizza and sushi his favorite book is a brief history of time by Stephen Hawking good book personal profile for (laughs) is this a dating profile Donatello is described as the brain of the TMNT he is fairly studious and industrious. A reasonable mister Fixit. Donatello has a knack for inventing cool new gadgets and machines. Considered the most reserved of the four TMNT, he would rather talk things out than fight, and uses violence as a last resort. Let's look at Michelangelo. 5 foot tall. Weight, 165 pounds. Weapon, nunchaku. Favorite color, orange. Hobbies. Skating. Surfing. Video games. That's my dude. Favorite music. Rap. Surf music. <laughs> Whatever. It's Jimmy Buffett. Nice. Nicknames. Mikey. Alright, this information's on like three screens for each turtle. Favorite food. Are you kidding? Pizza. Favorite book. In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Dendak. Tuesday by David Weisner. The Polar Express by Chris Van Alsberg. Couldn't choose one, could ya, Mikey? Personal profile. Michelangelo is the party dude of the TMNT. He enjoys life and often lightens things up for the other turtles. Michelangelo likes to skate, both inline and board and surf. He describes being a ninja as awesome and knows how to take care of himself in times of trouble time for our fearless leader leonardo he is five foot one 170 pounds his eyes are brown his weapon is the katana his favorite color is blue hobbies none really no time i like candles if that counts <laughs> jesus favorite music traditional japanese and new age for meditation nicknames leo leon fearless leader not my favorite. He says that. These are written in their, I guess, their dating profiles. Favorite food? Rice, fish, salads, apples, pizza. Favorite book? um, On the Art of War? Is that right? Isn't it just the Art of War? Hold up. Ads. Yeah, it's, it's just the Art of War. Good job, Leo. That's written by Sun Tzu, by the way you ever want to do war or something, that's definitely the book to read. Leonardo's personal profile. Leonardo is interested in order and tries to be the leader of the TMNT. When accused of being too stringent in his expectations, Leonardo responds, I'm not striving to be perfect, only perfectly proficient. He loves his family more than life itself and feels responsible for their protection. Leonardo Believes a proper ninja is always prepared and three steps ahead of his nemesis. Time for our New York turtle, Raphael. He is five feet even, 170 pounds, little tubby. His weapon are the Sai. His favorite color is red. By the way, Sai is like daggers. His favorite color, red, for many reasons, none of them good. All of them appropriate. Wow, how dark. Raphael's hobbies include hockey, baseball, golf. Mostly stuff that he does with Casey Jones. Fighting. Favorite music. Rap, metal, punk, grunge. Nicknames. Raph. Psycho. I think it's a nickname. Gotta <laughs> love the little character put in here. Favorite food. Cereal. How is... Pizza's not even a favorite food for him? That's wrong. Favorite book. Jurassic Park by Michael Crichton. Book is better than the movie. Read it. Ooh, almost skipped over his personal profile. Raphael's personal profile. Raphael is the dark TMNT. A cynic. A pessimist. The crazy. He is antisocial and ill-tempered. Raphael likes to leave alone and be left alone. Raphael doesn't start fights, but finishes them. In a dog-eat-dog world, Raphael is the big dog moving along to splinter height 5 foot 2 weight 115 weapon any or none it matters not i prefer non-violence as i wish did all favorite color i am partial i am partial to both purple and yellow hobbies reading cooking favorite music Traditional Japanese music and reggae. And a boy. Nicknames? I do not know of any. Uh, he says that with an exclamation point. <laughs> Favorite food? I quite enjoy fresh vegetables and cheese. Favorite book? I must limit my library to be one tome? An arduous task indeed. I must meditate on this. Hmm. I choose? The Chrysanthemum and the Sword. The Chrysanthemum. I'm not sorry. I'm not familiar with the book, but Chrysanthemum, the Chrysanthemum and the Sword. Sorry, this is not in an easy text to read. Which is written by Ruth Benedict. Personal Profile: Splinter is a peaceful master of Ninjutsu, the way of the Chateau Warrior, whose origins are clouded in mystery. Some say that he was once a man known as Hamato Yoshi. Another tale tells that he was merely a humble pet rat of a man named Hamato Yoshi. Splinter's days as a warrior are reaching their sunset, and he hopes to pass his skills to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And their half-shells. And on to our enemy, the Shredder. And it is the Shredder. It's his full name. Height, six foot two. Weight, 220 pounds. Weapon, BAH! Weapons are for children. I have my armor. It suffices. He uses a weapon. Screw that. Favorite color? Purple. The color of royalty. As it befits me. Red. As it flows from the lifeless bodies of my enemies. Jeez. Calm down. Hobbies. Conquering the world. Favorite music? I have no no time for such foolishness. What? Nicknames? Conqueror. Reveler master lord emperor favorite food i do not eat food it is for the weak of mind and body what that can't that can't be right that that he eats food favorite book books are mindless drivel composed of egocentric worms who egocentric worms who think that their views are of actual importance bah when i rule There will be no place for such quiverish gibber... gibber. (laughs) There will be no place for such gibberish. The Personal profile for the Shredder. I wonder who wants to date this guy. The Shredder is ninja master of the Foot Clan. The Foot have existed for centuries, and the Shredder is their prodigy. He considers himself unstoppable and reigns supreme in the clan. The Shredder is not satisfied with ruling the Foot... And we'll stop at nothing short of global domination. And those are our characters. Let's get on to the movie. The movie begins. An AOL Time Warner movie. AOL. I hope I have some audience listeners at some point here who have no fucking clue what AOL is. And good for you, you young buck. We open up to a mildly ominous and almost wondrous, almost score as we get a view of the busy city, New York City, with April O'Neil Much reporting the news about a string of crimes occurring around the entire city. Organized criminal element is at work, and at the moment, business is good. So good, in fact, that there appear to be no eyewitnesses to any of these crimes. With complaints ranging from purse-snatching to breaking and entering, police switchboards have been swamped with the angry voices of more and more citizens who have fallen prey to the recent surge of crime that could Judith Hugg was the, the actress who played April O'Neil, an actress with an incredibly lengthy career. Um, one who, according to her Rotten Tomatoes biography, was more interested in the craft of performing than she was in getting famous. Fair enough. I think she was. Um, I think she did a fine job in her role as April O'Neil, and there are moments in her performance in this movie that are very well done. She definitely seems to be a student of the craft based on this performance. There are subtle things that she did that added to her uh, character's character. I apologize for laughing through that. I'm my cat is currently being needy and. The amount of hair coming off of her and flying around my face right now is ridiculous. We see a bunch of scenes of items just getting jacked from at like high rates from all sorts of different people and locations around New York. And this sets up the syndicate that is currently in town responsible for the crime wave that April and Neil is talking about. The Foot Clan. We get a little teaser of some ninja-looking guys in fairly cool-looking all-black outfits with these, like, bug-eyes going on. They remind me of the putties from Power Rangers. Just, like, more ninja-y than the Power Rangers putties. And cooler-looking, considering their outfits don't look like they were found at the local thrift store. Seriously, go back and check out the putty outfits. It's, um... They're pretty bad. They're they're about as bad as the choreography of the fight scenes in that movie. Or, in that movie. In that show. Pretty quickly, we are introduced to one of the main side characters. Who plays a role in the movie's plot. He is part of The Foot. As they also, these ninjas also refer to themselves as. We don't know who he is yet, though. This opening sets a rather dark tone visually and thematically. I actually wrote a note about how much this... This New York City has always reminded me of Tim Burton's New York City in Batman, which came out a year prior to this. I was rather pleased to see this exact sentiment stated in a pretty nice article that I found while doing some of the research on this movie. And that article was written by Alec Kerr. That's A-L-E-C, space capital K-E-R-R. You can find this article on ConwayDailySun.com which it was published on september 10th literally the same day that i was doing that research so that was kind of an odd fate moment but um cool little cool little article by Kerr. i also wonder though in turn five years later in the third installment of that era of the batman movies batman forever did Joel Schumacher hark back to this movie a little bit with how much, like, the Foot Clan's hangout, um... You know, i worded that wrong, but, like, how how similar it is to the Foot Clan's hangout in that movie. If you know what I'm talking about, you definitely are on the same page. And if you don't, then you probably don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Either way, it's like Joel Schumacher kind of in turn just stole a little bit from this movie and then they just... He just juiced that vibe up to like a thousand. <laughs> so I don't, I see some similarities, but I could understand if someone wanted to argue differently, feel free to argue differently with me. I'll take your head on, bro. Back to the movie with a nice little reference to Ghostbusters in the first Bronze few minutes of this movie. As April O'Neil says, Who are we gonna call? in an excellent reporter voice, the movie does a nice job of moving us through all these visuals including a first sneak peek into the crime underworld leading us right outside of the news station as april finishes her report and is just leaving work for the night the movie movie slows down and shortly after april gets spooked by a rat scurrying past her on the ground piano keys in the soundtrack there's a sting and the percussion definitely all play well with that action that we are seeing on screen after we get the faux scare with the rat april gets attacked by four thugs and the turtles make their first appearance when Raphael uses his side to knock out the street lights the screen goes totally black and the turtles uh, just kind of beat these thugs up while the screen is pitch black We return to being able to see anything on screen with the cops' lights uh, relighting the screen up as we see the thugs tied up for the police. However, Raphael forgot his sigh that he had thrown to knock out the lights, and April finds it. She stashes it inside of her purse. While she kind of is inspecting the sigh and then hiding it in her purse, Raph is looking on from the sewer, from the manhole, and... um. He sees that she takes it and puts it in her purse. That is also the first sight that we actually see of the puppets, the Ninja Turtles. Then we get a very fun 90s style child friendly theme as we travel down the sewers while some title cards show. I'm getting my popcorn out for this beat. Up with our Turtles, just around the five minute mark of the movie, and as the title parts are finishing up, pending on a high note with a guitar, as the title Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles gets plastered on a freeze frame of our Turtles. Movie on. Um. Right, yeah. characters remember all that mumbo jumbo I was talking about well look at here the movie gives a little introduction to each of the turtles very simply and quickly doing a little character building each turtle gets their own screen time as they each say say certain things done by the writers knowing that this is the debut film not everyone reads the comics and this is going to be different for the kids who have only bought their merchandise and like seen the saturday morning cartoons version of the turtles because that's different from the comic version the movie comes to a full halt as they reach splinter awaiting their arrival at the turtle's lair We'll call it the turtle cave, not at all inspired by the bat cave, which this movie drew inspiration from. I just want to mention, I'm on time out right now, but so I was messing with my cat, and I never thought to let y'all know this, but my cat's favorite toy is a, a cat toy, but it's um, the fabric around it. It's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle themed, so it's tight. Bye. Bye. It's Thursday night right now. We got the Cleveland Browns playing Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals. And I just want it to be known right here, right now, I'm calling it out. Joe Burrow is going to be a star in this league. I mean, I don't know. at the very least, he's going to be a very formidable quarterback. Back to our story. Raph is freaking out about getting his side back. Raph showing that uh, quick temperament with his strong Italian New York accent. I lost a sign. Then it is gone. I can get it back. I can get it back. Let it go. Michelangelo is ordering a pizza while whirling his nunchucks. Uh, some very carefree actions with the most carefree like voice of the time or accent in a California surfer. Accent. I want a large thick crust with double cheese, ham, pepperoni. And after some words of wisdom from Splinter, he suggests I that they suggest all, we meditate. all meditate. now on the events of this evening. But the movie avoids getting too serious as instead the turtles decide to crack the music up and dance a little Yeah! Out for a movie. Hey, Where are you going? And Mikey and Donatello are out to pick up the pizza that Mike ordered, and they are hanging out like before uh, below a sewer grate. There are two things about this scene that I would like to talk about. First of all, I have to quote the article that I told you about earlier because it is very eloquently said. The article that I'm talking about is from the conwaydailyson.com of which Alec Kerr wrote. The turtles are surprisingly expressive. An introspective exchange between Michelangelo and Donatello while waiting for a pizza delivery rivals Yoda in Empire Strikes Back for excellence in emotive puppetry. I obviously agree with that statement. Secondly, this scene reminds me a lot of the pizza ordering scene in Home Alone. There's a lot of similarities. Both pizza delivery men show up late. They both have weird directions for the location of the delivery. And they both get stepped on the order. Hey, this is a ten. And that's thirteen. You're two minutes late, dude. Mike leaves the pizza delivery guy with a stupidly prophetic saying. Lies men say forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. Get a new as they are having dinner splinter breaks the fourth wall with a kids joke after a slice of pizza lands on top of his head cheese side down a little layup of joke to the parents in the audience it's me. Not, not that great raf gets done with his movie critters which may have hit home with him like a little too much and uh, this will lead into the introduction of casey jones hockey face who is played by Elias Koteas overall I really think that he does a nice job with this role uh Elias that sounds better Elias has been in the industry since 1980 it uh it looks like his career got a bump from this movie and really kind of took off from there Truly, Elias hit his uh, prime 20 years into his career, as his last 20 years looks to be going well for him. So, good to see that. Good for him. Anyways, Face and Raf are each serving up some vigilante justice and end up in a fight with each other. Both are at blame for the fight happening. They both instigate each other at times here. We get two bump in heads. They lighten up the music and it builds up nicely as this fight occurs. It's mostly cartoony and fun. Raph takes a few hard smacks here, but it's nothing too violent. Raph does not like it when Casey calls him a freak. Nice little bit of character development um, slash humanity built in there. I think they actually were setting up his sensitivity to being called a freak with his remarks about the critter movie, which he uh, had seen, and you know, that just occurred moments before in the movie. Raph gets home late, and Splinter is waiting with candle lighting for him. I have tried to channel your anger. Splinter calls out that Raphael has anger issues. But more remains. It clouds the mind. Anger clouds the mind. Turned inward, it is an unconquerable enemy. The puppeteering is so good on Splinter. We transition to the following morning at April O'Neil's apartment, and her boss, Charles, and his kid are both at the apartment. Charles is concerned about the uh, mugging that had occurred basically on their property and he seems like a good caring boss to be honest uh there's really nothing creepy about the fact that he and his kid are there early in the morning as she's getting ready to go into work so um there's no uh he doesn't have a thing for April which was a smart decision his son Danny The kid that we saw in the beginning of the movie is hanging out with, like, at April's apartment with his headphones on, and April's boss mentions that he's not sure where the kid even got those. The little jerk. Look what you did, you little jerk. Sorry. have get upstairs right now the little asshole steals cash from april's wallet the actor for charles is a bit of an over actor let say that much little complaint coming up as we transition from here to the turtles who were all hanging out there watching the tv as the news report for the morning is going on and one of the turtles goes hey look it's her well, the Turtles grew up here in the sewers of New York City. They should have recognized her already from, like, in the earlier scene on the street. If they recognize her when she's on the television. Because they clearly watch the news, like, every morning. I don't know. You know, that they know the local newswoman. They know who April is. But in this movie, they're learning it with us. So whatever. It's fine. A little complaint. The TV report is uh, talking about the Foot Clan, giving us a name to the Foot Clan, and there's some nice backstory about some history of the Foot Clan from years ago in Japan. It's not necessary, but it helps with further immersion into the entire story. Due to Miss O'Neill's hard-hitting reporting on the Foot Clan, some Foot soldiers that is upon are sent to silence her. A slap to the face and shut it is uh, the route they use to silence her. keep trying to keep a PG rated here. So, I mean, it's much nicer times dealing with criminals apparently than like with politicians. If you think about how they silence people in House of Cards. April decides that she's going to fight back and she ends up getting knocked out uh, after a short little fight with the Foot Clan. But Raphael happens to be nearby as he was trying to find his side. One of the Foot Clan members follows him as he carries Knocked Out April down the sewers to their hall as we get some nice tension from the score. The fight between the Feet and Raph is below average. It reminds me of a Power Rangers style fight against the Putties. Are you crazy? I always enjoyed this line from Raph when being questioned about bringing April back to their place. Why? 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 Oh, I don't know. Because I wanted to redecorate. You know, a couple throw pillows, a TV news reporter. What do you think? As April wakes up after she was knocked out, the lens comes into focus on Rapid's face as um, it's like a first person perspective shot from April's point of view. Her screaming is pretty great. Hi. It's realistic, humorous, and not obnoxious. Hi. April straight up thinks she's like having a Wizard of Oz dream at this moment. She calls out the rat that scared her earlier as the reason, being behind why there is a life-sized rat in front of her. Then she attempts to explain away the turtles. She freaks out. There is no explanation for them. April's acting and what she says during the scene is great. So is the sigh that Splinter lets out as she exclaims, Why don't I ever dream of Harrison Ford? Solid Joe for the parents. Nice delivery, too. Immediately, Splinter goes into, like, full story mode. Fifteen years prior, Splinter was a pet rat, mimicking his master's martial arts moves, learning the secret art of the ninja. They tell the story twice in the movie, so they skip over some of the details this time around, uh, shortening the story, but as the story goes, Splinter, while still a normal rat, adopts these four baby turtles that he comes across who were crawling in this mysterious ooze coming from a broken canister nearby the turtles grew and grew and so did splinter each of them growing both physically and mentally so rat and four turtles pretty much becoming humans the first words out of the turtles mouths while they were babies is pizza pizza and radical and then we come back from a flashback, and Splinter introduces each turtle to April. Side note, I found it a little odd. They only showed two of the four turtles' introductions in this flashback. I wonder if that was due to it being like too repetitive, possibly a cost issue, a puppeteering issue, maybe it was written like that, or like a pacing issue. It's just a little odd that they just introduced two of them at this point in the movie only. I don't know. It wouldn't be your standard choice. Uh, In about 25 minutes, though, they've taken their time to set the mood, set the story, and get us all the information about the turtles we need to go forward with the movie. I would say technically this isn't quite the end of the first act, but it's the beginning of the end. I think it's nicely paced, and they were largely able to avoid simply using exposition largely telling the story through the medium we are watching as much or more than through dialogue. I speak about exposition quite a bit, so the definition for exposition is that it is, quote-unquote, a comprehensive description and explanation of an idea or theory. A comprehensive description and explanation of an idea or theory. For example, the opening crawl in the Star Wars series, or... Like in this movie when Splinter tells the story of the origins of the Turtles. Those are both examples of exposition. Exposition is necessary, but it is also easily done wrong, or you can have too much exposition. You'll hear critics hate on exposition a lot. I think maybe that hate goes a little too far, but exposition is a tricky topic, technically. The turtles wind up heading back to April's apartment for a little pizza party. They go on to do some very popular slash famous impressions <laughs> and are just kind of being silly in general. Uh, yo, uh, well, uh, maybe I'll find Apollo. Uh, maybe I won't, you know? Uh, what do you think? Adrian! I got another one. This is totally cool. Okay. can't. It's a bit corny, but the scene moves quickly and does show some friendship building some character building um it's it's strange and April's face will make that clear as all the turtles leave her apartment and she you know locks her door and then we get a shot of her facial expression as we move on to the next scene where the turtles go back home only to find that their place has been trashed and Splinter has been taken or killed. Regardless, Splinter's not there, and these are teenage mutant ninja turtles, so they head straight back to April's apartment. So I guess the previous scene was in there simply to give the turtles a place to go. I'm sure that follows the storyline of the comics too. Charles Sun's storyline, that's Danny, Get some more meat as they sneak in a very quick but I'm in a scene where the police chief calls Charles and asks, You got a son named Danny, Charles? I'm not sure how clear it is. As a kid, I don't think I caught on to the corruption going on. They are, however, setting up some collusion and politics going on with the police chief in another attempt to silence April. Charles and his son are now at April's again, and the turtles are there as well. Charles explains to April that he needs to take a step back from their big story they're investigating, and that she needs to as well. This entire scene, the turtles are having to play hide-and-seek to avoid being seen by either Charles or his son, Danny. Danny actually gets a glimpse of one of the turtles for a moment, which is important to the storyline. Charles and Danny have left via a car from April's place, and Charles is asking Danny why he would steal. Rather politely and even-keeled, but... Danny has had enough of his dad, and he just jumps out of the car, um, not while it's going, but he jumps out of the car running away. We follow Danny and get a full introduction to the seedy underworld of a building. It's pretty awesome. There's a skate park, a video game arcade, loud music, gambling tables, everything like a cool-ass 12-year-old could ever want, or one who wants to be cool kind of thing. They even have cigarettes. You know... For those real badass 15-year-olds in the crew. In the back of this hangout, there is a ninja training program going on. A dojo. After a bit, we get introduced to the main man of the operation, the Shredder, who looks tight. We witness, essentially, a knighting of one of the ninja dudes where he earns his putty bug mask, aka his dragon doji. Earn the right to wear the dragon doji. To help set this up properly, everyone associated with the Foot Clan is gathered around this back room for the ceremony. After the knighting ceremony, the Shredder speaks to everyone about how they have a new there enemy. A new enemy. Freaks of nature who interfere with our business. You are eyes and ears. They need any help they can get in order to find these freaks with the reward of earning a dragon doji mask. They take a moment during the speech to bring us to the back area in the room, where we witness Splinter with a tear coming down from his eyes as he hears all this being said. During the speech, the Shredder says, This is your family. I am your father. I am your father. Luke. He doesn't say Luke. But A. The father figure aspect is a heavy theme found in every corner of this movie. And B, I want you all to become full members of the foot. Shredder oddly sounds like Darth Vader because they both have helmets and they speak through their helmets. And they both kind of breathe heavily. So just kind of a heads up if you haven't caught on to it. There's a lot of influence from the Star Wars movies in this movie. After the comment about the freaks of nature, Danny puts one and two together and raises his hand coming forward change scene. They use that tactic a fair amount in this movie, not really giving us definite information a few times, but it's all simple enough that you can be positive about what occurs off screen. It's a cheap way to create tension, but once again, being a movie geared towards kids, I don't hate this tactic as much as I might in a movie that's geared for adults, as well as the fact that normally you're left wondering what the outcome was when this tactic is used, but In this scenario, in this movie for the most part, every time that they do it, you're about 99% sure of what the outcome is. Personally, I think that they did it as much for tension as they did for pacing reasons to help keep the movie going along quickly for their audience. Back to the turtles at April's place. It's midday. Raph gets in a heated argument, and so he heads up to the roof to let off some steam with some sweet ninja moves, including a cartwheel for good measure. A little plot convenience here, as Casey, aka Hockey Face, catches a glimpse of something odd happening on a different rooftop from the one that he is currently hanging out on, and he uses his binoculars that he keeps on his roof. Wait a minute. Casey, what is it that you do on this roof of yours with those binoculars? Maybe let's not think about that. Casey zeroes in on a big-ass turtle doing martial arts on top of a roof. So, you yeah, know, obviously totally normal things. As that happens, we see some Foot Clan members creeping up behind Raph, and, once again, they move to another scene without us truly knowing something. In this case, if Casey saw what was about to happen. Manufacturing tension once again. there's a fight on top of the rooftop, if we didn't suspect that to be coming, and Raph isn't going down easily. The fight scene is much better than the one earlier. The turtle outfit doesn't seem to hinder the turtles quite so much in this fight scene. There's some nice comedy happening too during the roof fight as they... Keep going back and forth between the other turtles, constantly reassuring April that Raph is okay and just needs some space. Nah, he does it all the time. Intercut that with Raph getting his ass kicked, and he is far outnumbered. It's pretty great. Eventually, Raph gets thrown down from a big skylight into the apartment building right in front of all the turtles and April. Battle Royale. Ow! i like the little nunchuck off that mikey has with one of the foot clan members one of the feet the cartoon sound effects become very evident in this fight scene regardless i actually like how they're used in this movie it somehow works and fits Um, these types of sound effects really only ever work during full-on cartoons or animated works for the most part other movies would try to copy this Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle formula, including the cartoon sound effects, but it's it's almost far too corny and silly when matched with like live action film, but in this case, they pulled it off. Props to the sound effects department and the production as a whole for being able to do that, because like I said, you just, you don't see that done well, I'm not even going to say right, you just don't see it done well too often. The turtles are losing this fight, when all of a sudden... Um, you guys mind telling me what you're doing with my little green pal over there? Casey shows up. Mm-hmm. Oh, who is the babe? Who the heck is that? Wayne Gretzky? On steroids? Another radical track kicks in as, once again, with Casey's present, uh, d- the fight gets more serious. antique store in which this fight is occurring and in which um, april's apartment is actually above the antique store is now on fire and as the turtles and crew are making their escape casey overhears a voicemail being left on april's answering machine it's her boss charles informing her that she has been fired i alluded to the conclusion before April couldn't let her investigation go, and so it's pretty evident that forces are pressuring Charles to do this. After they've all successfully escaped, we get a skyline shot of the fire. It's huge. The place is definitely a total loss, no doubt. Um, That fight scene went exactly seven minutes long, which I think is a pretty long action scene, so... Nicely done. It didn't get boring throughout, like... um, I believe later on, there's also a pretty lengthy second fight scene. So they take their time with these action scenes, which is appreciated. Back at the Foot Clan's hideout, the Shredder is pissed that the Turtles and April got away. Shredder actually goes to torture Splinter for information, and they do show some of the torture in a way. Splinter is um, hes just not doing that great health-wise. He's in a bad situation. After this, the number two who's in... Who's in command of the uh, Foot Clan, is ashamed by his unsuccessful attempt to get rid of the Turtles in April. He takes out his frustration on several Foot members, and Danny oversees this. Not liking what Danny sees, he takes a moment to go up and like check out this oversized rat that's being chained up. Um, And he finds out that Splinter can speak, and they have a conversation, which further helps to plant some seeds of doubt for Danny and the path that he is on in his life and his relationship with his father. From there, the Turtles and crew arrive at April's childhood home to regroup and hide out. This home is way out in the country, so it's a nice, safe uh, hideout for them. Nobody was able to follow them, so they're there safely minor critique of the set design at this location it looks overly dirty looks like a set that you'd see at a play where things are overly done so that way the audience that's up in the nosebleeds is able to see some of the detail um it happens a little too often in hollywood for my liking things just tend to get overly worked and then um well i guess in this specific scenario i notice it a lot when they're trying to make things look old used and dirty not screen ready but like live play ready. There is a difference. Casey and April immediately get in an argument after they arrive at the location. It's very much a mom and dad argument vibe going on here and they're setting the stage for a relationship. Uh, Wait, well, hey, you just saved yourself an 8 mile tripper. Uh. on 8 mile tripper. Wait, hey, you just saved yourself on 8 mile tripper. Uh. You were fired. I'm. I just saved myself? Yeah. Uh-oh. What did you do? Did you take classes and insensitivity? Hey, I was just trying to break it to you easy. Oh, well you failed miserably! Hey Bradzilla, you won't even be standing here for a win for me, okay? Oh, and what do you want? Do you want to thank you? What no. You? It's me who should thank you for that privilege, right? Fine! Yeah. Thank you, No, thank you! You're welcome. Pretty, you pretty evident my... there. Then the movie takes a moment to make sure that the audience is understanding the message of the movie. We do have kids as our target audience, so that's fair. April has an inner monologue about each of the turtles as she hand draws them, talking about each one um, and kind of what makes them tick. Their character. She's talking about their character. As she does this, we get a short scene of each turtle where in that scene they're kind of reinforcing what April has said about them in her inner monologue. Something this movie does well. Most often when there is exposition, is that the exposition is also accompanied by a visual aid. Actually, you know what? April only does this for two of the turtles and very briefly for Casey Jones. And then there's Casey Jones. A nine year old trapped in a man's body. He might almost be cute if it wasn't for that pig headedness he's up with the others. I think I mentioned earlier they're in a situation where they did this too and they kind of only introduced two of the turtles and um the first flashback in this movie when splinter is telling his story about the um, coming across the baby turtles i wouldn't be surprised if they covered all four turtles between the two scenes i never went back to check to make sure um you know, I wonder if part of splitting things up like that is so that they could limit having to do too much exposition at once and, and potentially lose their target audience. So smart decision by the writers, if that was the reasoning, or maybe even the editor, if that was the reasoning, whoever made that decision. I'd say smart decision, even though it kind of bugs me. April follows this up by talking about the entire group as a whole. One of the messages of the turtles is that they're effective when they're working together as a group, not so much solo or without one of their group members. There's a little montage here with each of the turtles, the turtles training cool on their again, own and yet still not. Whole a lingering doubt remains an unknown which they can't bear to face their greatest fear. Ending with a warrior-like scream from one of the turtles, from a cliff's edge as he shouts. Splinter! With that holler, we are transported back to the Foot Clan's hangout as the Shredder and his number two in command give us some straight up exposition here. Flourishes, master Shredder. What more from the rat? Nothing. It will not speak. And the boy who led us to the tunnel. He is still missing. I do not understand. Why do the turtles trouble your master? They have not been seen for many days. Something about the way you describe their Foreshadowing that there is a history something with him and these turtles, but he cannot quite figure out what it is. From the past. Then the music transitions us back to the country as we get a nice training scene with all the turtles sparring with each other. also a short nice not nice but there's a short little scene i guess building up that relationship between april and casey there just really isn't chemistry between these two in my opinion one day leo is out and about in nature and he takes a moment to meditate leo and splinter have a moment of esp as they show splinter receiving the message he ekes out leonardo leo knows that splinter is alive he felt his presence. That night, they gather around a fire and all concentrate their energies on splinter, which gives us a force ghost. What? Awesome job with the special effects in this scene. It really looks as good, or as, or even better. I mean, this is years later as the Star Wars force ghost from the original movies. So, very nice work. Here's a criticism, though, from this entire portion of the movie. They do a pretty dang poor job of establishing how long they were out at this house. In under 10 minutes of movie time, they really rush um, a quote-unquote getting prepared for battle after being wounded kind of scene. If you're not sure exactly what I mean off the top of my head, it's like the bar scene in Suicide Squad. A moment for some self-reflection, preparation, character building that kind of moment in a movie. Anyways... I'm not complaining too much about how rushed it is because I am ready to move on from this location and get back to our main story and get some action going again. After the turtles' experience with Force Ghost Splinter, they are ready. So you actually played professionally? Uh, before I got hurt, less us than a year. Sorry. The... And they vary dramatically in a moment meant for por... yeah. oh, as huh? I told you. meant poor posters, you, I'm way? sure. Exclaim What is it? It's time to go back. It's time to go back. Our totally tubular score kicks back in as the turtles arrive back in town, this time with a little extra edge. Per usual, they arrive in the night while it's raining. It's almost always nighttime, and it's almost always raining in New York City in this movie. New York. Heading back to the turtle cave now, we find out that Danny, the kid as a reminder, was apparently aware, apparently aware of where their home is because he's using it as a hideout and he's still a runway. I don't think that's explained at all. Then we get a fantastic line from April to Danny. Oh god, your father's gonna have kittens. April, what the fuck does that even mean? Beat me. I, I ran away from home. Oh god, your father's gonna have kittens. Somebody explain it to me. I'll accept it if it means something. The Toydles get a hankering for pizza after a quick nap, and I personally always cracked up in agreement as the guys host a funeral for some leftover pizza that Danny had ordered. The funeral is because it had quote-unquote penicillin on it. Moldy pizza is a shame. Up next, Danny has a coming-to moment while sleeping as he dreams about the contradicting messages that he's receiving from Splinter and the Shredder about his relationship with his father. And so, Danny wakes up from this frustrating dream and he sneaks out from the turtle cave. Casey wasn't about to be resting in the sewers, so he's in his vehicle near like the closest manhole cover to the turtle cave. Casey notices Danny sneaking away, so he plays detective and follows Danny off to the Foot Clan's compound. Danny heads directly to Splinter once there, and those two take their sweet, sweet time. Splinter goes on to basically retell us his backstory, but with more detail and some new visuals to go along with the story. This scene has one of the most funny, awesome, memorable visuals in cinematic history as it gives us some puppeteering of a goddamn rat doing martial arts. Remember, this is before he got oozed, so he's, he's just a, a normal rat. Apparently he's just a super talented normal rat, though. Fucking doing martial arts. Second thing I would like to talk about in this scene is that it also gives us an answer to the Shredder's foreshadowing, setting up a previous rivalry between the rat, when he was just a normal rat, and the head of this operation, the Shredder. All that really needs to be explained here is um, that the rat scratched the Shredder's face, hence the helmet covering his face, and Shredder cut off Rat's ear with his katana. I should also mention, the Shredder has figured out that the turtles are back in town, and he no longer has any use keeping Splinter alive. So Splinter is about to be killed. Folks, it's about time for a rematch. Casey catches up to Danny, and they have a new plan. Save Splinter. Simultaneously, the Foot Clan is being sent out to go after the Turtles. Side note, there is really nice detail on Splinter's puppet as they save him from his chained-up location. Um... You know, he's been tortured and kept for some time under very poor conditions. He's not cute, he's old, he's frail, and he doesn't look like he smells too good or has showered in some time. For a kids movie, I really appreciate that they made him look realistic given the circumstances instead of being all cute and cuddly. A concern with realism and telling a quality story over selling merchandise. I'd also like to give props to Casey Jones' actor, as he pulls off a very funny face as he sees Splinter for the first time. His face reads, Well, I don't really know what I was expecting. It is an oversized rat, like I was told. It's pretty humorous, and I think that actor really nailed that moment. There's some more fun, cartoony fighting for about five minutes, and the turtles have got the feet on the run. Once again, things get serious when the Shredder hops down out of nowhere and our Turtles get their first sighting of the Shredder. Classic one-liner about the Shredder. Does anybody have any idea about who or what this is? I don't know asked to look for a can opener. <laughs> you fight well in the old style The turtles each go after the shredder one at a time. it's so telegraphed that it's almost like they're trying to set up something about teamwork which actually doesn't pay off. I wrote that note but really they never figure it out in this movie. After several attempts the team has to huddle mid-fight that's correct mid-fight. They are huddling. It's pretty hilarious because in the background you can see Shredder just literally pacing back and forth waiting for them to get done with this huddle. Now exactly what point did we lose control here? Then there is a bit of an awkward scene here where they had to figure out a way to introduce April onto the location. So at about an hour and nineteen minute mark in the movie, April just kinda pops up out of the sewers. I appreciate the attention to detail in establishing April's location but naughty editing or writing maybe they lifted this directly from the comic books would be my guess and in a comic book it would be less awkward just as a still frame but it in the, in the context of the movie it's a little awkward and clearly just inserted on in there to set up her location back to our turtles though the important stuff maybe somebody ought to tell them that we're the good guys yeah any thoughts? I've only got one thought. The guys are just now realizing that the Shredder probably knows where Splinter is. This guy knows where Splinter is. They're not aware that uh, the rescue has already been happening with Splinter. And so, things are getting serious for them now. The soundtrack kicks in with this beat again. <laughs> Turtles are still mostly fighting Shredder, one at a time. So in love with this track, yo! to the Turtles, Casey is playing Reinforcer as he gets their back um, by stopping a few of the remaining feet from reaching the fight against the Shredder. The Turtles are all bruised up. like Visually, they look like they've been beat up Um, and the the physical toll of the fight is being worn on the Turtles. So, very nice job by product design. It's details like that that really help to set this movie apart from the masses. And it's a little funny that some of that stuff got so nicely done in detail and then there's just some errors in this movie that are I guess unforgivable, but there's small issues and I'll talk about them later when I rate the movie. Splinter reaches the roof just in time to help turn the tables. He also reveals to the Shredder that he is that rat that years ago the Shredder had cut his ear off. Of I'm a bit confused on how Shredder wouldn't have noticed the missing ear earlier and maybe just at least asked about it. Come on, writing. We've gone over this. It's not the first time that you've conveniently created moments for the characters even though we are already aware of them as the audience and so really should the characters be. I do have a tough time criticizing this too harshly because I think I may have mentioned earlier in different words, but I think the strategy of revealing the story one small piece at a time throughout the entire movie really helps the pacing in this movie, which in turn is probably a large reason for its success. With that, the Shredder forgets about all of his training and he reverts to anger, the number one emotion of bad guys everywhere. Very anticlimactically, because anger blinds, right? Splinter easily disposes of the Shredder. The Shredder essentially does a bull charge right at Splinter, and hes um, Splinter is near the edge of the rooftop. Not a very smart or ninja-like move, if you ask me. And as a silly YouTube series would say about the situation, no, super easily, barely an inconvenience. For your information, that would be Screen Rant's series called Pitch Meetings. It can be a bit repetitive and they're a bit cheap uh, on the humor, but they're also much more creative and well done than I think some people give them credit for. Go give them a watch if you ever need um, smaller bits of humor in your life about entertainment. So that is it, basically. Our main boss dies after falling off a roof into the back of a garbage truck that Casey gracefully turns on, crushing the shredder, and he very clearly dies from these injuries. Or does he? Dun-dun-dun. I'd like to point out the fact that this is a kid's movie, if you recall, and um, although there's no blood and it doesn't look overly gross, you don't see too much, the movie does show a villain getting killed via the crushing mechanism of a garbage truck compactor. What? That wouldn't happen these days. Anyways, Danny learned his lesson, and he returns the money he stole from April, and then he goes running away to his dad, giving him a big hug, realizing his dad isn't so bad after all. I've had the whole city looking for you. Are, are you all right? Are you okay, Danny? It's okay, Dad. Then we get another okay, stupid really line. It's me. just Dad now. Dad, it's just Dad some uh, nice light piano too going on in that soundtrack beautiful moment then after that moment as the movie is wrapping up charles has gone over to april and he is begging her to cover the story apparently he didn't have anybody ready after he fired her <laughs> you know what it's simple to get someone back on the job you just gotta pay him off april's got her job back she's got her own office and she's got the highest salary of all the reporters in town. Gotta to wrap up the movie appropriately here and get the payoff for this weird relationship between Casey and hi. April. <clears throat> Zero chemistry. <laughs> I, 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 I like I just called Mike Tyson a sissy. Yeah? Now you just say hi. What? You don't even handle this, do you? No, but I was. You just shut up and kiss me, okay? I got a report to do. The turtles are all like raving the kiss and cheering on from above. (laughs) They all get one-liners in again. All really classic 90s stuff. Yeah. I was a witness. Wow, a reporter, this song reporter, really is not on this great. Saying you better hurry up. This looks out the way. We need help like Ray Golf, the double half on the city. Man is in trouble. We need heroes like the Lower Ranger, one top of to where there was danger. They didn't say we'd be there in half an hour, because they displayed. Sounds like Shaquille O'Neal Rappy. My fuck. What's my favorite scene? Yeah, that wasn't too bad. I really suck at doing that voice. What's your favorite scene, dudes? My favorite scene is the second time that they flash back to the backstory of Splinter and you see the rat learning ninja moves along with his master. It's too fucking amazing. Like, I love it. Go watch it. Peace. That was totally dope. What do you say that we get down in technical? If you know what I mean. Whereas earlier, I gave you my personal recommendations, which is, of course, clouded with tons of nostalgia. Here, I am rating the technical aspects of filmmaking on a 10-point scale, and then I'll take the average of my scores for my official podcast. Start off with writing. There is a major glaring pothole in this movie. Pothole? There's a major glaring plot hole in this movie. It's never explained how the turtles get money to buy their pizza or to go to the movies i'm just kidding that's true but if i knocked the movie for stuff like that then this movie's probably going to get an overall negative rating because there are a lot of wrong unrealistic or unexplained things that occur but then again friends would also get like a negative rating so sometimes you just got to pass over the little things <laughs> So seriously about writing, I thought that they did a nice job of dispersing the exposition for the story throughout the film, never taking too long to focus on that aspect of storytelling. When you're making a movie for kids, it's important to keep their interest, and I think they did a good job, very much on purpose, of doing that. The 3 X structure is there and clear. I absolutely think that they managed to keep the tone and the script of the movie and the language in line with the movie's balance between this dark and gritty and child-friendly world and in turn, they were able to create an on-brand product, and keep it on brand. This movie is essentially the first iteration of a movie like Deadpool, to be quite honest, and in that sense, it's far ahead of its time. It's just it's a PG-rated version of Deadpool. It would take nearly 30 more years for the world to be ready for an R-rated comic adaptation called Deadpool. In fact, I'm so confident on this that I guarantee you the creators would have created a movie that was not kid-friendly at all if they could have, but that just wouldn't have made sense to do. So instead, they sprinkled child-friendly fairy dust throughout the movie the bare minimum that they could to get away with all that violence, all those dark tones, and even the swearing that's in the movie. Furthermore, they went all the way to cartoon levels of silliness to offset the dark comic book story that they really wanted to tell. This movie would not get a PG rating today, but as a product of its time period, they did a great job of avoiding getting a PG-13 rating, which would have affected this movie's box office numbers and most likely the impact and lasting power of the brand as a whole. I think it is evident that the storytelling is overseen by comic book creators. Some of the movie feels very much like moving through the panels of a comic book rather than a continuous flowing story. It's obviously a very ridiculous plot, but the message about family, and more poignantly about the relationship between a kid and their father figure, spoke volumes to an entire generation. I can guarantee you this movie shaped young me into a better person and a better child for my parents. I know I've given more praise than anything about the writing, but the writing is still questionable and far from excellent. I give the writing 5.5 out of 10. Which, it feels low, but I think some writing issues were covered up via the other aspects of filmmaking, and its successes are holding on by a string. Classically, technically, the writing is not sound. I just believe the writing didn't miss the mark, and it fits the end of product, and is 100% acceptable for the target audience, but all by a narrow, narrow margin. So, that was 5.5 out of 10 for writing. Moving on to cinematography. The one and only time I felt that the turtles truly looked out of place in this movie was when Raphael was on the rooftop of April's place doing all those ninja moves on his own. It's remarkable that that is the only time and it's not only due to the cinematography but they had a large impact on the integration of these turtles into the real world and in making that work. For example... The lighting in this movie is pretty damn fantastic. A lot of effort and detail went into well, the lighting of characters and shadows. Um, just some fantastic gaffer work. For your information, the job title for lighting experts is Gaffer. I guess there are a lot of small errors in the movie, as I mentioned earlier. Like being able to see part of the sound stage in some scenes, but I, I don't know. I don't think that the average person catches that, and even after being aware of some of these errors... I didn't really notice them while watching the movie one last time for this episode. The overall look and tone of the film, they absolutely nailed. Cinematography gets an 8 out of 10 for me. One nice example of the little touches that they put into this movie is that they shot the scenes with the turtles at lower frame rates than the final production in order to sharpen it and make the dialogue and fight scenes look more natural in appearance. 8 out of 10. 8 out of 10 for Cinematography. Acting. Probably like the second or even the single weakest aspect of this movie, but... um, So the voice work of the Turtles is nicely done. I like the choice in using like, the different accents to match each Turtles character's identity or their character. I don't think they made a wrong choice with any of the cast. But <clears throat> they also weren't a bunch of like Brad Pitt's and Angelina Jolie's running around. Is that outdated to use those two as an example? Might be. Might, might be a little... There aren't any, uh, Anna Kendricks and, no, I don't know. There was some overacting in the movie. Um, There were some scenes where the acting was subpar. The chemistry between April and Casey is weird. There are a few moments where I know the actor is acting or waiting for their cue, but the individual parts all worked well enough on their own. I think the actors themselves did a nice job of making their characters unique characters, managing not to get lost in the spectacle, and for the most part, they each stood out in their own right. Um, Appropriately. So acting is going to get a bit of a bump from that last part here. Um, I'd probably give acting like a... 5.8, but then a little half-point bump for the heart and the care that the actors gave to their characters. So 6.3 out of 10 for acting. Let's move on to production design. Jim Henson's studio is all I have to say about the design of the Turtles and the puppetry work done with that design. They freaking nailed it. Less than fun fact, this was Jim Henson's last movie he did before he died. The sets were brilliant, minus a little nitpickiness I aired earlier about a few times where things looked overworked. This movie has zero shot of success if production design isn't top notch, and it was overall, so 8.8 out of 10. Sound design. Have I mentioned that I absolutely am in love with the score of this movie? Now I realize that the score is dated, although it's probably back in style with a good portion of the younger generations, at least in part. I dig the synth, 80s, Mannheim steamroller-esque sounds of this era. I dig this score. The soundtrack itself, which was released after the movie, um, which unfortunately did not feature much of the score at all, had two huge hits. I think each of them even made it to the top of the charts at one point. Hopefully neither one of those was that last rap in the movie. Here's the thing. Last night after my final viewing of the movie, where I really realized how good the score sounded, I went and I looked it up. It wasn't available until 2019. The composer, John Dupré or John Duprez, D U Space P-R-E-Z, who doesn't have like a fantastic catalog coming into this movie or afterwards, as far as I'm aware, but I bet his career may have taken a little different path if this was released earlier on in his career. Anyways, John Dupree, my people, he fucking killed it. You can find the score on YouTube. I would also Google 2019 TMNT John Dupree's score and look for the list on the actual vinyl release, which is the only form of media it was released on, at least originally, to make sure that you've got the correct tracks. There are some booby traps out there on YouTube that wouldn't be what I'm recommending, what I'm talking about. The score tells its own score story that um, really that you can follow without watching the visuals of the movie. There are a few clunky portions, but when you add up what is happening in the movie during those portions of the score, it works. It's always that stuff that was added in the movie to keep it age appropriate, and those awkward score moments add up to what's happening in the movie just fine. There really is no way around the abruptness of those portions since the movie is kind of built like that. Remember all the times that I said, and then the movie gets serious? They always led with light-hearted cartoon fun in every aspect of the film, which would then divulge into the dark and gritty nature at the heart of this movie. Which is where this movie's score thrives. It thrives in all moments less those ultra-cartoony moments which are the moments that largely the sound effects crew put real sound effects in instead of those instrumental sound effects anyways. It's seriously good. And no, it is not perfect. The orchestra may be a little small. It may not age perfectly. Blah, 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 blah. But it's an indie film, folks. Side note, is it really an indie film? Think about it. Between all the endorsements, the popularity of the product, Jim Henson's involvement, The only reason that this is an indie film is because the creators wanted to be more faithful to the comics than the toy-selling cartoon version of their product. You don't think studios wanted to get their hands on a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie while their toys were flying off the shelves? So thus, the studios just wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. A dark, gritty, violent comic book movie in live action with a target audience of approximately 8 years old? Yeah, right. Right. I guarantee you they were able to pitch the idea to every last studio, though, because the Turtles were hot. The bottom line here is the studios weren't going to get final say, and those who did have final say, Peter and Kevin, the creators of the comics and the owners of the intellectual property for the Turtles, who had final say over any decisions, wanted to adapt the comic book more than they wanted to sell toys. They did like the paychecks from the toy sales, though, So, ultimately, they had to cartoonerize their true vision in order to not ruin their IP. And they fucking did it. You cannot argue with the box office numbers or the staying power of the brand even after this movie was released, which was a huge risk. They could have ruined their brand. Sorry about the tangent there, but back to sound design. First, for your information, if you're into listening to scores, or if you take my advice giving that score a listen and would like to know a little bit more about it, there is a nice write-up which breaks the score down in a way that is well above my knowledge level of music. You can find that by looking for the writer Jonathan Broxton's article, which is located on Movie moviemusicuk.us's website. So that's Movie Music moviemusicuk.us. I did find that the audio mix... The volumes of the track versus the sound effects versus the dialogue are a little off at times. The sound effects are cheap, cartoon sound effects, but they work. I don't get it either. It's a complete anomaly that this movie pulled off and what it did, but when you watch it critically, you tend to see a pattern that they followed, which means that it's really not a mistake that they were successful with this. Choices like this tie right in with keeping the movie PG. It's the only reason those overly cartoonish aspects are in here. The biggest knock on the sound design, and I'm not even sure if it's their fault, is the fact that several times throughout the film, Donatello uses Raphael's voice instead of using his own. Not only that, but this doesn't just happen between those two characters either. For example, it also happens when April thanks Raphael for saving her during an interview about her mugging during a television segment. Donatello says to Raph, Sorry, he doesn't say it to Raph. He says that Raph is turning red from embarrassment, but Raph responds in Leo's voice. Mistakes like that are pretty baffling to me, especially given what I've explained is, I think, a lot of love and care that did go into this movie. So, with that, sound design. Um, there's some small flaws, some baffling flaws. Not sure it's all their fault, but I'm going to knock them down a half point anyways... I give the movie like a 9.2 out of 10 for sound design, except let's knock it down for extracurricular activities, offsides on the sound effects, whatever, on the sound design. 8.7 out of 10 for sound design. That's 8.7 out of 10, where they track that I can't recommend anymore. Up next is how does the movie compare to similar movies by genre? That's what I would be giving a rating to. Is how does this compare to similar movies? Via genre look i honestly gotta think that this movie is in its own genre um i just took a minute here to look for evidence to convince me otherwise but if you google similar movies to teenage mutant ninja turtles the results are basically all marvel films with a few animated movies sprinkled in along with all the other teenage mutant ninja turtle movies And then lastly, there were a few classics from this time period that would meet, like, nostalgic value for viewers in the similarity aspect. Those movies were, like, The Goonies, Ghostbusters, and The Karate Kid. Ghostbusters is the one that I'd say comes the closest to the challenges that these filmmakers would have gone through, but that movie didn't have a brand to adhere to, adoring kids and fans, or a target audience of eight years old to cater to. So... What, what you know? What what do we have for a comparison? Howard the Duck, because then this movie's like a ten out of ten if you want to compare it to Howard the Duck. At least I think it is. I still I haven't watched that movie. And I probably should someday. Digging deep to not go on another tangent here. Um, just taking everything that I've said and will say after this, and and insert all of that here to explain my grade. I think this movie does something unique and it spoke to an entire generation with a positive message while managing to uphold much of the original grittiness of the comics, which frankly were R-rated comics and not meant for children at all. Fuck it. Fuck you if you disagree with me. Not you, but the other person who disagrees. I can't not put this movie in its own league, or at least a very small league where I can't kind of recall any of its true competition. This movie managed to pull it off with style. So it's it's almost a 10, but then there were enough stupid boneheaded mistakes that take it down a bit of a notch. 9.3 out of 10, if not only for its originality, the vision, the heart, the love, and the fact that it pulled off a very, very weird story and mix of tones so darn well. The last rating here. Is my total enjoyment factor. So it's it's very similar to my original recommendation level. I'm going to give it Lucky 7s here. 7.7 for the Turtles. It's a very enjoyable movie. Sure, the fighting isn't perfect. Sure, the editing is a mixed bag from great to oops. Sure, the story has a fair amount of exposition, even though I think they sprinkled in nicely throughout and offered us visual aids while delivering that exposition. And yes... The story gets rushed at times, even though I think that the pacing of the movie benefited from that. And yes, critics, there are several product placements, but shit. You can't forget that they had to make a kid's movie, even though they much rather would have made an R-rated film based on their comics, without any concern about ruining an entire brand. It's... Gosh dang enjoyable, and even with all the pop culture references, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for the most part, holds up today. That was 7.7 for my Enjoyment Factor rating. Go Ninja, go Ninja, go! Let's recap that and find out what my official podcast score is for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and their half shells, writing... I should just call these shells. Writing five point five shells out of ten shells, cinematography eight shells out of ten shells. Okay, I'm gonna stop that. Acting six point three out of ten, production design eight point eight out of ten, sound design eight point seven out of ten. In comparison to similar movies, nine point three out of ten, and my total enjoyment factor rating seven point seven out of ten, which comes to a for my uh, official podcast scores. My official podcast score is 7.757 out of 10. Look at that. The Lucky Sevens came through. Gotta love it. Now I should shout Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go, 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 Go. Do you think the fans and the critics gave it some props, reviews, or what? I got reviews somewhere. Hold up one moment. I'll be right back. Actually, you know what? At least in large part here, I'm going to maybe not read off the negative reviews because I got a tangent to go on. A lot of the negative reviews for this movie echo sentiments about the product placement of the movie and that this movie was just thrown together to sell merchandise to kids. Woosa. Not going to get angry about this, but I just want to say that you are wrong and you need to get your head out of your own butt for a few reasons here a just because a movie is geared towards kids and successfully sells a lot of merchandise which the teenage mutant ninja turtle movie or i mean their franchise was already doing does that mean that it was made specifically for that reason or that those who were involved in making the movie didn't have a vision or passion and care or just plain skill in this case, you are wrong because there is no way in hell you release this movie with the sole purpose of selling toys to children. It would have been animated or at the very least it wouldn't have been so dark and violent. I would reference those folks to check out the following the follow-up movie to this movie for, you know, a primary goal of selling toys. That that movie got totally neutered. B Can all you critics get over your hatred for endorsements just a little bit, please? Yes, it can be done incorrectly and take you out of the movie, and yes, it can be done so blatantly that it's literally a commercial within a movie, but 95% of the time, that's just not the case. So what if this guy has a bag from Hardee's next to him during lunch? So what if you can clearly read the company's name and logo? Have you never eaten fast food and had the bag near you? To me, most of the time, it only keeps me in the movie as that seems like a totally normal thing to do. People love their massive brands. that's They consume those products. That's why they have the money to help support a movie's budget while getting in some advertising along the way. I'd much rather a Starbucks cup than some generic cup that either has some stupid spoof name of Starbucks or just says coffee product on it. That stands out to me more than whatever you might see in your everyday life. Of course, it depends on the movie. C. Some aspects of movies are going to be geared towards the target audience. When the target audience is 8-year-olds, some aspects of the movie cannot be overly complex. Some aspects of the movie will not make you, an adult, laugh. Get over it. The movie was made for kids. Judge it like it was made for kids. Don't get all butthurt because the movie wasn't made for you. Not everything is about you. You don't raid a jeep based on how fast it goes 0 to 60. Andy, go the hell home if you want to try and say that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was just tossed together to sell toys. I know I just spoke on that, but slightly different message here. This movie very clearly has a vision, talent, and passion behind it. They didn't just throw this movie together. Sure, there are a few too many stupid errors that should not happen in a perfect movie, but most of that is barely noticeable, which is probably how it slipped through the cracks in the first place. I watched this a thousand times as a kid, and I did not notice 99% of that. Try to go into movies with the purpose of enjoyment instead of the purpose of finding what's wrong with it. Just go along with the movie, guys. Happy little thoughts. Happy thoughts. Okay, I'm looking for one negative review, and that negative review I'm looking for is our boy Ken Hank from Mountain Express, Asheville, North Carolina. He gives this movie 0 out of 5. And the reasoning behind that is, quote unquote, there is no excuse. All right. Thanks, Ken. Positive reviews. I think I'm going to slip through. Well, okay. So from Luke Y. Thompson of The New York Times, really echoes kind of how I think I feel about this movie, gives it a four out of five, maintains an effective balance between the kiddie tune and the more subtle comics it was based on. Cotius is miscast, though. That was the actor who played Casey. we'll do one more from Lloyd Bradley from Empire Magazine. Lloyd says, A well-rounded, unpretentious, very funny, knockabout adventure. Subtly blended so that it's fun for the whole family. Original score, 4 out of 5. Nice, nice, nice. Hey, look, okay, I've got one. One negative here that I just wanted to talk about from Henry Sheehan, Hollywood Reporter. The one subplot that could... Uh, the one subplot that could have been milked about a young friend of O'Neill's. First of all, he's not a friend. It's a boss's son. Who falls in with the gang, is handled indifferently, and fails to supply much in the way of youthful identification figure. Um, I think they're missing the point that the turtles are the one that kids are supposed to identify with, not the kid. He's more of a message bearer about a relationship with your father... Uh, I'm not saying we're not supposed to identify with that. It does give a little bit of humanity, but it's the turtles that we're supposed to identify with, not this kid. Interesting facts. <laughs> it's time for some totally tubular facts. Got a bit here. Um, and I believe this will lead us just to the ending of my video. Just... A heads up, i got more facts than normal, and also I will be going on a rant towards the end of this. Uh, well, not a rant. I, I will be just uh, going and talking a little bit about the Turtles franchise. So, first, interesting fact here. Robin Williams, who was a big fan of the franchise, provided Judith Hoag with information regarding her character, April O'Neil. Though his comic book collection, the two were co-starring in... What? Through his comic book collection, the two were co-starring in Cadillac Man 1990 when the turtle film went into production. So both movies got released in the same year but it takes a while to make a movie. Judith Hugg didn't even get brought back for the sequels because she was a complainer. So a little lesson for everyone out there. Don't complain a lot around your workplace. No one really likes to work with the person who's always complaining. You best believe that it matters if people enjoy working with you if you want to stay around or get a promotion. So, just a reminder, guys, don't be complainers. Don't be a thorn in the side of your management team. Much of the filming was done in North Carolina, not New York City. The only, um, the only scenes that were really filmed in New York City were filmed in order to capture the major landmarks of New York City. All three newswomen seen or mentioned in the film are named after a month, April, May, and June. According to Josh Pius on the podcast I Was There Too, so that's Josh P-A-I-S, and the podcast name is I Was There Too, T-O-O, the director Steve Barron was fired near the end of production as the producers thought the film would become too dark. It is uncertain how different the film would have been if he had final cut. Assuming this is true, um, my theory would be that, and, and since this isn't widely known, I'm guessing. It really happened towards the end of production. So here's my theory. This firing was in name only, really. It, it, it only happened for one purpose. Steve didn't lose out on anything. The toy company, or somebody else maybe, asked for this action to be taken simply so that they could distance themselves from the movie if the audience's reception went downhill as a way to be able to save the brand and distance themselves from the movie. I'd say, you know, I guess smart decision. Good political move. I essentially uh, covered what I will be reviewing next at the front of this episode. And what I mean is I I talked about my future episodes. So instead, I'm going to give you a bit of a history lesson about the turtles. Not so much specifically about this movie. I brought up the show, The Toys That Made Us, in the beginning. What I'm about to talk to is heavily influenced by information gained from that show as well as some of the other research that I did for this episode, i consider this entire history as one big interesting fact. So, interesting fact coming up! The two creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, met by destiny and pretty quickly bonded over a love for Jack Kirby, the godfather of comics. Shortly after that, they moved in together and formed Mirage Studios. The studio was their living room, and the name Mirage was chosen with all of the irony in the world. One day, while bored and hanging out in their Mirage of a studio, Kevin decided he would draw something in an attempt to make Peter laugh. Successfully doing so, the two loved the creation that Kevin came up with, and Peter thought he would draw his own version. These drawings were the birth of the Ninja Turtles, a total collaboration and fluke that by the end of that day would become the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and turn into four instead of two. They decided to self-publish, and the first edition sold out immediately, receiving pre-orders for five-fold the original print amount. They quit their jobs then and there, and they went full blast on with these turtles. They went into hyperspeed. Not long after their initial success, an individual by the name of Mark Friedman approached them as he was looking for the next biggest IP to present to toy companies for merchandising. Which... It makes sense why this brand was really built from the merchandising side up. (laughs) Funnily enough, though, much like the guys in their Mirage Studios, Mark was also faking it until he made it. And so, with that deal between Laird and Eastman and Mark, they agreed that Laird and Eastman would have final say over any product, and the three moved on together forward. A little-known company from Hong Kong named Playmates was their last resort after being rejected by several big toy manufacturers. Luckily enough for them, Playmates was attempting to break into the Western markets, thus willing to take on a little more risk maybe than the established toy companies, and Playmates decided to take that risk with the turtles. Fun fact, the turtles don't have tails. You want to know why? Well, in the original comics, they did. However, once they began to create 3D models, you know, for like the toys, of the turtles, they found out that the little turtle tails really looked Alec from a lot of angles. So let's move on to another fun fact. Why don't we? Chuck Lore, the king of sitcoms. You might recognize that name. He wrote the intro song to the cartoons. You all know it. Teenage Mutant, Ninja Turtles, Teenage Mutant, Ninja Turtles. Turtles the most fierce, team. There's a lot more to it. I'll play a little clip of it and hopefully eliminate my singing, but who knows? Maybe i will make you suffer. But if you're not familiar with the name Chuck Lorre, he hit it pretty big in more recent years with several kick sitcoms. Most notably, you may recognize two of them, The Big Bang Theory and Two and a Half Men. One more fun fact. After these three received their first million dollar checks, Eastman bought a damn tank as one of his first purchases. First big purchases. Maybe he bought a candy bar first. I don't know. Mark ended up uh, going a bit rogue from the group. As he struck a deal for an Andy motion picture. Pretty much everyone else with interest in the Turtle IP. Felt like he was just trying to rock the boat. They had a pretty sweet deal going on with the toys and the cartoon thing. To be fair. Especially up until this point in film. There are a lot of examples of comic book film adaptations that flopped pretty hard. Of course, we know how that story ended. There really are a lot of fun details that I briefed over here too, um, but this review's on the movie, so kind of briefing through this. And I don't want to ruin that episode, the toys that made us. Don't want to ruin any of that. So to conclude my little story here and my podcast episode, after a lot of success and many years, Peter and Kevin ways as an evolution of not only their friendship but also their business partnership. Based on what I can gather they never fully truly rekindled their friendship. In the Netflix show they do meet back up and you can tell that they like each other and they always will but it's a shame that um, they don't quite appear to capture a full friendship like they once had. To me it seems like they like each other they have love for one another and they both 100% genuinely appreciate and genuinely miss the friendship that they once had. However, it also appears that there are a few threads hanging on as well, preventing that from happening. Life factors. So it doesn't seem that their their friendship truly got rekindled after years and years of probably being in little contact with each other. So I just want to mention that their, their friendship seems adorable, and I think most of us have at least one person in our lives that we care about, even if we may not remain a part of each other's lives. That seems to be the situation with those two, so at least they care about each other. Cowabunga, motherfuckers. Take care. Have a nice night. Weekend. Week. Month. Day. Until the next time you listen to me. Love you, bitches. Oh, snap, dude. That was, like, a hella good show. totally hope that you had a banging time as well and we'd appreciate it if you followed us on any or all of our social media <laughs> you can even donate to help us <laughs> all right what the fuck take on me okay that sounded terrible i'm gonna cut that shit